How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hello, this is Catherine Nichols at Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This week, our year is 1990, and our book is Lucy by Jamaica Kincaid. I'm here today with uh, Sugi Ganeshanathan and J. Robert Lennon. Sugi teaches creative writing at the University of Minnesota and is the author of the novel Love Marriage. She also co-hosts Lit Hub's fiction nonfiction podcast. Um, you may remember that she was here for the Excellent Women episode of Lit Century before, and I'm particularly happy she's here now for this episode because she was actually a student of Jamaica Kincaid's as a young writer, and um, about halfway through this episode, um, she she will tell us what Kincaid was like as a teacher and a mentor. It's really interesting, so make sure you stick around for that part. I mean, listen to the whole episode, but you know. Um, John teaches creative writing at Cornell University and is the author of many books, most recently Subdivision and Let Me Think. John was our guest on the Unconsoled episode here, so I'm very happy that both Sugi and John came back for this book. Uh, A summary of Lucy. Um, It's about a young woman who goes from Antigua to New York to work as an au pair, and she's particularly fond of the mother of the family she works for, Mariah, while she's trying to distance herself from her own mother. Uh, While she's working for this family, Mariah's husband leaves her for her best friend, Dinah, and Lucy's father dies, but Lucy refuses to open the letter from her own mother that has the news of her father's death in it. Um, Eventually, she moves into an apartment on her own in New York and sleeps around, gets into photography, and kind of cuts ties with her own family permanently. This is an interesting book because, John, you teach this book. Sugi, you're the author, Jamaica Kincaid, was your teacher, right? Yeah, that's and, right. And uh, my relationship to this book is that I used to be an au pair. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess I think that, John, I'm going to ask you the first question. And sure. that is, when you are teaching this book, where do you start with it? That's a good question. I, I think the thing that draws me to this as a as a pedagogical tool is the power that the voice has um the way that the character talks about things like she pretends not to recognize what racism is for instance or to recognize what class differences are she pretends to be surprised by them and says them in this imperious way as though she's surprised that people would harbor uh, these foibles, right? Harbor these bad opinions. Um, it's really a very simple story. The woman becomes an au pair. She goes through a year, nearly years in au pair. She quits and she gets an apartment and that's it. And in the background is this trauma of her childhood at the hands of a cruel mother that comes to a head when she learns that her father dies. That's all, that's all it is. There's not really a plot. mother. Yeah. 
What's that? Oh, an arguably cruel mother. I, 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 I'm not totally ready to, to go with her being a cruel mother. Okay. I think that it's possible also that she's a cruel daughter. Oh, I think there's no question of that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and there's a okay. moment when um, we're again, getting ahead of ourselves, but when Maud, her childhood friend, shows up in New York and at the apartment and says, your father died um, and says, you, you're just like your mother. <laughs> yeah. um, she becomes enraged. But of course, by this point, I, I, th- I think you're right that we sort of realize she is a lot like her mother and they're cruel to each other. Um, but I, but I think that that voice um, is really a commanding voice, and it's both the the overconfidence of the very intelligent young person, but also the retrospective of the older version of that character who is presumably telling the story in the past tense. And it's both it comes off as simple, but it's actually sophisticated and complex. And um, I, I talked to, I was just talking on our our uh, other friends uh, podcast book fight about how. Yeah. Um, about how uh, first person is very popular right now. This is another book I'd like to give people to say, here's the thing you can do with first person other than just say, here is my story and I am straightforward and you can believe what I say. Absolutely. I I didn't think of it as a traditional um, unreliable narrator, but I think that there's definitely slate of hand and sophistication in how she's giving the information and what emotional resonance different things have. Sure. Yeah. Um, and actually, just to to talk about race for one more moment, as I was reading it, I was thinking about um, I was thinking about 1990. And I was thinking about the goal of anti racism at that point, like the the high watermark of anti racism was like the colorblind, you know, that you would like not see race. And right. I was thinking this felt like a text of that, in some way, like mm-hmm. a text that that allowed there to be interactions that, that didn't have race inside them between her, a black woman and her white employers. I would, uh, I would argue that the narration is very self-conscious about that and is mocking the notion in a, in a subtle way. Yeah. It felt odd to me. Yeah, it's definitely odd. Yeah. And yeah. No, no one else writes like this. I don't think it's um, I, but I do find that, the com- that that sort of the complexity that this uh, supposed straightforwardness harbors is very interesting to me. I was thinking about the fact that it came out in the New Yorker, and I was wondering, is this somehow something she's giving to white New Yorker readers as like an offering of like you're allowed to see yourself as this kind of good white person if you are not being impolite to your employees, you know? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You mean that you, they're all Mariah? No, just that, that, like that, that there is a path toward being a, like a racially innocent white person, which is like somewhat how, how I read Mariah. What was your perception of that, Sugi? It's interesting to hear you guys discuss it as though it... Um, I don't know. I I must have been reading it for I don't know what number reading this is, but I was remembering that the first time I read it um, must have been shortly after entering college, and I didn't have that much context, and I didn't seek that much context out. And now having a lot more context, and having read sort of a lot of her body of work, right? There are so many other things in it that I do read as race 
even though I think she herself and the first person narration don't put it that way, right? And and I also don't think that Mariah is innocent. I think that there's like a lot of interesting, there's a lot of really um, damnation that I find quite funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. It's sort of like, oh, and Mariah was sad about the environment, but she did not recognize that her own wealth and Lewis's stockbroking might have anything to do with the environment. She did not recognize that if any of these things that she bemoaned stopped, uh, they would lead to her own reduced circumstances. I and, noted down that sentence too. I want to yeah, hear the rest of what you're saying, but I also took notes on that one. And there's a there's a great line of dialogue where the where they're talking about how they they're they're sort of casually nature preservationists, basically trying to prevent more people from building where they have built. And she says, "Well, what used to be here before this house we are living in was built?" And it infuriates everybody. And I feel like she's always kind of tweaking this this faux innocence of of Mariah and Lewis and the, and the other white people. Yeah. yeah, and the the person who says that line, I think, is Louise, the daughter who is just turning of an age when a girl turns on her mother. Oh, really? I I misremembered <laughs> it as uh, I misremembered it as Lucy. And well, I think they're all like there in the dining room, and and Louise sort of turns around innocently and, and says that line, and I was like, oh, how perfectly tween cutting, you know? I just there was so much in the book that I recognized this time around, and I, of course, like you know, I'm we're you know monitoring the lo- the location of the heat dome and the temperature in Death Valley. And so the streak yeah. of environmentalism in this felt very prescient and I don't remember noticing it before. And of course it's there. And um, like the ways in which I felt like there is a lot of conversation about race in it, but it isn't in American terms, which would be to call it race maybe right here. There's stuff about, um, I mean, she mentions enslaved, per- like Lucy mentions enslaved persons, you know, my, um, my ancestors likely would have been slaves. Um, she talks about sugar. Um, so there's sort of references to colonialism, but it like the word race is never mentioned, but I still felt right. like it was so dense with that. Like, like skin color is one of the early things mentioned. I think like, um, like my skin was the color of um, a soft brown nut or something like that. So sort of like, it isn't elided either. It just isn't like the terminology is different. The, the bit that really gets me every time I read it is the riff about the daffodils. Mariah mm-hmm. has this, and I will say, just to back up, Catherine, I do think Mariah is presented as an innocent, but it's not a flattering portrait to my mind. I think she's a, she's a fool and is cruel without realizing that she's cruel in the way of, I think, white people who think they're, they're doing the right thing, right? Um, but yeah, yeah, I want to respond I, to that. I have but the more thing to about, say about that, but I want to hear what you're saying okay. first. But the daffodils bit is Mariah uh, brings her to a garden to see the flowers and to Mariah, they're merely beautiful. And she wants Lucy to share in the beauty of the flowers with her. But she's the daffodils that she's so fond of. Lucy remembers as not knowing what they were as a child because they didn't grow where she grew up. But she had to memorize a poem that white people had written about daffodils. And it became for her a symbol of the oppression of her of her education. And so she's infuriated by the sight of the daffodils and Mariah not being a sophisticated person hasn't is completely bewildered by this and i i feel like that that sort of that's the nexus of the race stuff and the conservation stuff um and the character stuff yeah go ahead Catherine. sorry oh so okay this is this is actually an au pair thing um that um, (laughs) that, um, so a lot of hmm, the au pair system like the the legal definition of an au pair 
um, was established in Europe in uh, 19, 1960s, I think, late 1960s. Um, it's sort of, it's not a totally separate urge than the Peace Corps. It's not, it's not the same as being a, a domestic servant as your like career. And it was specifically legally set up to be an educational opportunity where you do some domestic work. It's mostly women, girls that do it. It's young people. And the idea is that one sort of middle-class-ish girl goes to a different country in order to um, improve her facility with the language, do a little bit of child care, live with another family to kind of get to know another culture from the inside and um and also go to classes which lucy is doing like the idea isn't as um so and this is what jamaica kincaid herself did that she was an au pair she was not what um even in like modern interviews that i was watching on youtube with her people say like oh your family sent you away to be a servant, to sent you away to be a maid. That is not actually what being an au pair is. It's not a career. You usually only do it for a year or two years, something like that. And it's a little bit different in the U.S. because um, most countries, um, it's expensive enough to get somebody there. You know, it's like in, in Europe, it's pretty easy and cheap to get to a place where people mostly speak a different language. In the U.S., that is more expensive. So I think that the somewhat like the economic balance between the person who is taking the job and the person who is hiring them, like there's a little bit of a power difference there. That's more exact. It's like more exaggerated in the U.S. I was an au pair in uh, France, and it was terrible. It was an awful, awful job for many reasons. But it is actually supposed to be an educational opportunity. And I think that that actually really matters to the interactions between Mariah and Lucy. And it matters to the interactions between Lucy and her mother, because the, the crux of the thing that Lucy is angry about is that when her younger brothers were born, her family stopped investing in her and stopped believing in her future and stopped wanting to kind of educate her or imagine her into greatness or... Um, sort of value her intelligence and her uh, strength. Mm -hmm. But the difference between being sent to the U.S. as a servant who would be sending money back to Antigua and being sent as an au pair for a year as she was studying to be a nurse, that actually seems like a pretty important difference to me. Well, to me, that's that's part of the, the spice of this book is that this character is kind of mean and uh, is, like you were saying earlier, herself kind of cruel uh, and a little condescending and very independent and pretty explicitly wants to use this family to start her own life in the way that she pleases. Um, Mariah, of course, is mad when she quits early, but by that time, Lucy is just doesn't care. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I do think there is that dynamic of um, Mariah sort of expecting gratitude from her, um, which might be sort of a... a a uh, reasonable thing to think, given that you're supposed to be helping to educate somebody, but the character, uh, Lucy, would obviously much rather learn things on her own. And it's sort of a study of her fierce independence. And you know, I, I don't think it's all, I don't think she is intending to present the character as always 
in the in the moral right, right? Definitely not. I think that she has biases in her expectations and reactions to things that are her personality, which, you know, love that in a character. Um, but I also think that some of the ways that I was seeing in criticism of this book, it, like she's in a role where in theory, both she and Mariah are expecting her to come out more or less as in the same sort of social universe. And the fact that Jamaica Kincaid did end up in the same social universe as the family that she was no pair for, like she became a New Yorker writer and, you know, that's the point of being an au pair. I wonder how much of my own understanding of what an au pair does is generational and how much importance people attach to the term now as opposed to just babysitter or, you know, I'm thinking of um, when I lived in New York in the mid 2000s. I wonder, like that term seems very important to her biography and to her writing. Um, And I think as I understand it, although, I mean, I can't say that I spoke with her directly about this. It's just from reading um, I don't know if either of you have read Ben Yogoda's book About Town, which is like a history of the New Yorker, um, which I think at the time I might have gone to the library and gotten sort of so I could be like, how can I understand <laughs> Professor Kincaid, um, which is what I called her very respectfully. Um, right. I don't think that her job as an au pair was what led to her being a New Yorker writer, although she did, to be fair, like end up in that social world. Like, right. I think she was she was sort of like going out on the town and, and met um I'm trying to remember which New Yorker writer it was, but someone who invited her to contribute to About Town and then sort of did this in such witty fashion, right? So I I don't know, like it's, I take your, it's, that's a really interesting point about being an au pair. Um, I just wonder how it goes in, like the extent to which an experience of being an au pair in Europe would be different than an experience of being an au pair here. It's a really, it's a useful distinction for me to hear because I don't think that I had necessarily assigned a lot of different, assigned like a, the appropriate level of difference to that term. Um, maybe in part because sort of my recent experience of living in New York, I didn't hear people assign a lot of difference interesting. to that term. That's interesting. Um, but that may just be like slippage or sloppiness. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's certainly right. She has this um, elaborate independent life, which, you know, she cultivates an artistic eye. Um, she has dalliances with a, with a few men. Um, and there's also, I don't know, just all of these interesting echoes. And this is, I think, the thing I missed on my first reading of other things that Jamaica Kincaid had written. Like, I sort of felt like, um, right, like notes on seeing England for the first time. I was like, that's all over this. Yeah. There's little little fingerprints of, um, of that thinking all over this. Or, or even, you know, my upbringing, like the, the notion of a mother's, the love of one's life, which also this time around sort of made me think of um, Wild um, yeah. and Cheryl Strait, who also talks about her mother as the love of her life. And, um, you know, she says, my entire upbringing had been focused on not making me a slut. And then, of course, this time I thought of girl. Um, and I think like last time I hadn't sort of put all of those puzzle pieces together, the death of the father. Um, and then you think of Mr. Potter. So... One of my favorite bits in here is where she, when she finally writes to her mother and says life, that life as a slut was quite enjoyable. Thank you very much. <laughs> One of the great lines. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sugi, I'm curious if you, um, 
if you had ever, if Jamaica Kincaid ever spoke about this book's relationship to her own life, obviously it's tempting to think of it as semi-autobiographical. She didn't. Um, And I think that, I mean, the sort of patterns of her writing overlapping, I think that I've always felt like it was pretty easy to make that leap. Mm-hmm. Um, like some of those correspondences, right, are obviously intentionally, some of those correspondences are intentionally there. Um, and there's an unapologetic quality to the voice that I do also associate with her, um, and which is true in almost all of the writing. So she didn't talk about it, and I didn't ask, I think, because, you know, I was pretty young and terrified. Um, <laughs> Well, but, if you, I can imagine yeah. that if you'd read her work before you met, like I would be afraid to meet her. <laughs> there's such like, uh, there's such like cultured fury in her sentences. This, this like seething anger that um, she uh, she only she rarely expresses in descriptions of emotion. In fact, the the very end of the book, when her, when in a in a in an almost preposterously uh, emo moment. She, her tears stain her own name that she wrote in her notebook. Um, there's very little of that. There's very little of that kind of intensity of emotion. There's just a, like this restrained anger that runs through, I think this book and all of her work that I've read. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause that, that moment, um, my fiance writes about melodrama and we spend a lot of, I don't know, he, I have spent more time in recent years thinking about the qualities of melodrama in my own work. And then I got to that last image and I was sort of like, and my tears fell on <laughs> fell on my own face, and uh, and for those since this is a podcast, I should say I just put the back of my hand to my forehead, and you no, know, but there's so many other moments in here that could be melodramatic, but they're like anti melodramatic, yeah, right? Like there are these like the cruelty to which we refer is so um, understated, taken as a given. It's not offered with it's not offered with ex- an exaggeration that or or like a flair that. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't operate like melodrama. Although there's right at the center of this book, there's also, she refers to the ruin of the family. And there's a couple lines here, you know, the ruin of the family was before me. And I was yeah. like, oh my God. <laughs> but those, those moments really stand out as a result. But then when those things actually happen, right? I think what we're referring to is that um, there's a, a woman appears in the first half of the book named Dinah, who is a friend of, the, of Mariah and who immediately Lucy presciently dislikes and she's flirting with the husband and they laugh together and of course he ends up leaving leaving his wife for this woman um but the her you know instead of playing it for the drama that she's been preparing us for she instead sort of insouciantly just says well this is you know basically she she regards mariah as a fool for not expecting this to happen right this is simply things a thing that men do and that a 40 year old woman wouldn't know that uh, is is uh, is pitiable, really? Yeah, and I think that that's the word that's used. And it would be so easy for the ruin of this family to be the center of the book, but I feel like Catherine's point about education is really well taken because, like, so much of what is at the heart of the book is like Lucy looks at this family, but she also looks at so many other things, and um, like not only sort of cultured fury, but a sort of cultured. She's developing a way of seeing um it's like a urbane individualism i think that she has the the yeah. it's not just that she could and this was like a moment of shocking cruelty that i um 
that I thought was very unmelodramatically played, which was when she gets the letter from her mother marked urgent, and it's clearly the letter saying that her father has died or is dying, um, and she doesn't open it. I was just like... <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> definitely knocked backward by that. Um, and the, the, that's a destruction of, of her own family, that she's decided that, that she doesn't want to belong to her own people anymore. Um, her own mother in particular. And it's like she's moving away from the family and she sees Mariah as being a pitiful fool for believing that her husband loved her and that um, that she could preserve anything from her vacation house's environmentalism, which is like a family of bunnies. <laughs> and her husband kills one of the bunnies because it's eating yeah, his, his The way he's sorry, not sorry, runs over one of the rabbits he despises is, uh, I think, a great moment in his character arc. Yes, that Mariah and the children love the bunnies and that this is somehow part of their environmentalism, which is... It, <laughs> mocking yes i agree that the degree of mariah's innocence is it's like the book does not respect this innocence it's Um, it's bottomlessly condescending i mean i really feel that's the the whole vibe of this book that sets it apart from from other short novels that i teach is this like (laughs) it's rare that i've seen a character that's so arrogant but is to, to me so addictive to read and appe- appealing in an unexpected way to me. I think arrogant is maybe the nicest way of saying it. I was thinking <laughs> that there's actually, it, it, there's like a kind of nihilism inside it to me of like, sure. that on some level she doesn't think that, she thinks that people who believe in things are fools. You know, the people who think that their family will be there for them. Mariah is just walking into a trap by raising children who will inevitably turn on her. Um, Her own mother has, like, made nice meals or whatever for um, her husband, Lucy's father, who has all these other women and other children, and the other women are trying to kill Lucy's mother. And it's like the the truth of the family is violent and is... um, exploitative and that Lucy herself is going to have none of it. Um, And then what's on the other side of that? The other side of that is taking photos of strangers where she doesn't know them and doesn't want to know anything about them. She just thinks that they like looked interesting on a darkened street and going to museums where everyone involved is dead. Uh, You know, the artists are dead and um, living with somebody that she already has stopped wanting to be friends with, like her friendship with her roommate already ended by the time they signed the lease. They already hate each other. She only has meaningless sex. It is awesome, you know? Yeah, she screws um, the creep that, that uh, Peggy tells her to stay away from. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and she, you know, while she's kissing someone, she just thinks about, like, the sensation of having a tongue in her mouth and whether it's different than other people's tongues that she has also had in her mouth. Um, And I guess kind of my question about that is, is this necessary? Is there a way she could have gotten free of some of these terrible situations that she grew up with, with anything short of this degree of cruelty and arguable nihilism, arrogance? Is there a way she could have gotten free if she had opened letters from her mother occasionally. She says no. Yeah, I mean, she says, 
she says she there's a line I jotted it down that she would have died that yes that she would have died if she had op- yeah if I had seen those letters I would have died um I think she's kidding herself I I don't think she would have died you know it's a bit it's a it's a bit of rhetorical melodrama um but what she wants is to use this anger as a springboard to having the life that she wants um I mean the question's maybe kind kind of moot because then it wouldn't be this book it's the book is really about this character and her and her um sort of extreme tactics for becoming a person yeah um and so but it would i guess i suppose so but it would be a very different different kind of book i'm sure what do you think siggy i i'm trying to think about all of the ways in which like I wouldn't dispute any of the characterizations in that I think she is cruel and condescending um I mean, and also lovable. very huh lovable like I don't mean <laughs> yeah no she is lovable and then also the only two characters she describes loving are Mariah and her own mother um who right and she condescends to Mariah and also hates her mother uh simultaneously she loves her and refers to her as something like something out of an ancient book or a god um you know, and who are these other people whose families don't have any heft, essentially, right, is the other thing. So um, I don't know, I'm inclined to be like somewhat sympathetic to, right, there's a sort of like journey of alienation going on, like sort of even as it's a journey of discovery, she's like, this is not how I imagined um, leaving home would be, like, this is just a different kind of disappointing, a kind of disappointing I can own um, and learn my way around and invent myself through, but it's still disappointing. Um, just all of my, the the picture of my disappointment has a different frame. And um, so, I don't know, I have some sympathy for the the idea that she that these situations are required as a form of independence. And I'm also just thinking about, and I don't have a great answer to this, but how would I, like this book couldn't be written um, with a male protagonist, I don't think, right? And so like how much of the way that we talk about and think about, right? How much of the initial reception of this book was simply that people were not used to um, like women protagonists um, being imperious. What was the initial reception of this book? It was very popular, right? It was well-reviewed. Um, it was considered brilliant. Um, and I mean, it's, and it, the prose is so precise and, you know, and also she was connected to the New Yorker. And, and so I think that that also brought the world, brought the book into the world with um, that cachet. And, but yeah, my impression is that the character is so iconic in part because there, I mean, I can't think of a ton of other women characters set in this milieu who, like, she's so, she's not warm at all. And I just think of the ways that women in the world are generally expected to be warm and kind and funny. Um, and for those things to overlap so that the funniness is also kind. And even here, like even, like her humor is, the moments when her humor is kind only have to do with the children. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like, yeah, Actually, I think that there are a lot of men that write books like this. I think like John Updike writes books like this. <laughs> <laughs> we're not we're not reading him though. We're not reading John Updike. Uh, I mean, maybe one of these days. 
<laughs> like, I don't want to rule it out completely. If one of you guys wants to do a job out there, well, I will say. I just the, mean that. The, the, okay, sorry. One quick thing. I think that the plot oh, line of a person who goes from their fairly unsophisticated family that's unsophisticated in whatever way, and then they use some educational opportunity, whether it's like going to a you know school in the city or whatever it is, to vault out of their family's original milieu. They become urbane. They sleep around a lot. Um, they have a higher paying job than their parents do. Um, and then they come back in some way to uh, thinking about their parents' lives, uh, making art or you know, intellectualizing where their parents came from and the distance that they have traveled from where they started out. I think that that is a major second half of the 20th century trope. I think like mostly the, the Kierkegaardian men. hero trope, sort of. Well, like Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, he doesn't use an educational opportunity. He uses like being a rock star. But as we've discussed often, Bruce Springsteen never had a blue collar <laughs> job. His only job was being a rock star because uh, he was so successful to- at it right out of the gate. Um, I feel like I feel like there should be some sort of lit century bingo card that, I, <laughs> that has like references that we take off. But let me let me refine my comment then to say that I don't think, and there may um, there probably is reasonable disagreement about this. I don't feel like people discuss those characters so much in terms of their cruelty or in terms of their condescension and imperiousness. Like I think that the discussion of this book um, is inevitably gendered. And so much of the anger comes from the place of being a woman who feels that she has been denied opportunity or given different opportunities as a result of gender. Absolutely. So like our con- yeah, our conversations about the book, like, I kind of like the idea of like Bruce Springsteen at the center of like a short novella. Of well, okay, so, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> no, I think that the, the punishment for being like that, the punishment for getting free is much less for men, so they're allowed to come back for Thanksgiving or whatever. And I think that that's why the question is for me, is this degree of cruelty necessary? And the answer could be yes, because she is a woman of color in particular, because the degree of energy required to get to escape velocity for her means like really uprooting these connections rather than just, you know, being on the road a lot of the time or whatever you know like bruce springsteen is allowed to come back home in a way (laughs) that um that i think that she's not yeah i i um i like your description of it as needing to achieve an escape velocity um you know and i do think that i think sugi's right that it's the conversation is gendered inevitably because that kind of fury would not be noteworthy in a in the male version of this character right but in the female version of this character it is noteworthy um and it's it's a it's a tool i think that she realizes is noteworthy and is using in order to achieve what she wants to achieve yeah yeah so i guess i think my answer to is the cruelty necessary is yes yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I think we, I think we're 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 three for three on yes. I've I've come <laughs> around from maybe to yes. Yeah, and I think that like one other feature of you know the Updike style of novel is obviously misogyny, and I think that um, if she's going to live in that world and if she's going to maintain her sense of self, like if she's going to be one of these urbane people who sleeps around and produces art and 
is free in that particular way, um, but also somewhat rootless, she has to have this ironclad sense of self that I think we can very easily read as imperiousness or arrogance. It's part of why it's like delightful to read. It's, yeah, I buy that. Because it feels yeah. necessary. Can I, um, can I just mention my favorite bit of her coldness and, and cruelty yeah. and that I also thought find very funny and disturbing is the whole anecdote about the, about the friend of hers when she was growing up who, when a couple of old fishermen go out to sea and one of them falls overboard and dies, the, the friend is crying and, um, you find out that the, the fisherman has been, uh, has been, uh, I don't know what, what even to call it sexually assaulting her or, uh, you know, um, like molesting. yeah, molesting her and then giving her money for it. And so what we first think are sentimental tears, we realize are tears because she's lost the income. And then Lucy's response to it is to be angry, <laughs> not at the fisherman, <laughs> but at the friend, because why wasn't she the one who was being molested for money? And I found that so hilarious and and sort of knowing and, t- and telling about the character, right? About w- her hunger to have power, her hunger to escape, to have the means of escape. Um, I've, and that's, I love that scene because it surprises you at several different turns along the way and defies the expectations that it seems to be setting up for you. And there's one more t- twist to it, which is that um, what she learns that from her friend saying that like men with big hands have big penises uh, and uh, that she'll never find out whether he had big hands or not <laughs> because he's dead yeah, I've forgotten that bit <laughs> <laughs> and and it all it's a, all a flashback that spins from seeing Paul um, who is the pervert who her friend Peggy has warned her away from. She's about to um, sleep with him. It's the sort of the middle to end of a party and someone's rhinestone earring has tumbled into a fish tank and she sees Paul's hands going into the fish tank to seek out this rhinestone earring or um, in classic Kincaidian terms, an earring of rhinestones. Um, that important dif- difference <laughs> is throughout. And, <laughs> and she remembers this other pair of hands. And then like, you're like, oh my God, where did this go? Where did this go? That is not where I expected that to go. Yeah. Um, and you go into this, like, this long flashback and then it brings you back. Um, watching how she handles time um, was also just so interesting. Like these, yeah, these images taking you backwards um and that story is so like the other thing is like it's it is a friend and it's also not exactly a friend like it's someone who she she um she like waits for the fisherman with this girl but doesn't exactly like her but they have this sort of friendship that arises out of like proximity um like where you wouldn't be friends with the person but you just happen to see them all the time and then when the other girl is crying this is one of the moments where you see lucy be kind of false in that she offers up sort of like, well, you know, like he's gone to a better, like she says all these things, like he's gone to a better place or like there's a reason that this all happened. She sort of offers up a lot of like sort of faux religious stuff that she doesn't believe, but that she's heard other people say. And then all of those revelations follow that. She's like, I, I've never said anything like this before in my life. And I didn't mean any of it. And I was like, this might be the only time this happens, the whole book. Um, 
So, Sugi, we can edit this out if you don't have something that you um, feel excited to say on public record, but um, are there things that you learned um, from Professor Kincaid as a student? Uh, yeah, remember I... in particular as like her, that came from her? Sure. Um, I studied with her for a few years, um, basically my sophomore through senior year of college. Um, and a couple of those semesters were sort of one-on-one and she would line edit me. So I would fax her, would fax her, I would fax her my pages and then she would bring them to her office and I would sit in her office and I would read them to her and she would stop me at every place they were wrong, which made for really (laughs) slow going, such slow going. Um, But also like, what an unbelievable lesson. That's Um, amazing. Or sometimes I would just bring them in and she'd be like, this is bad. And I'd be like, that's, that's not wrong. Um, There was a Twitter thread going around yesterday about uh, professors who had been unnecessarily cruel. Um, Yeah, Antoine. (laughs) Yeah. And while I didn't condone any of the behavior that was being described, I was, I I feel like that hard hard assness about grammar and and syntax is something that's really important to me. I like, I like to think I deliver that criticism more gently, but I would, I would regard, I'm envious of you for having that experience is what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, it was um, like the care that she took with, I think I was also, I was the first thesis advisee that she had because I had enough Hoobers to ask, um, which I think sort of, um, yeah, like back then, I think she was a visiting lecturer at Harvard then. And so she was only there every spring. And so I think as a result of the fact that she wasn't there year round, no one had asked and I asked. And so um was lucky to to get this kind of um, really intense attention, but I think that like the trade off of if you ask for the intense attention, you're going to get it. Um, <laughs> and like so, when she did give you a compliment, you sort of were like, you you know, she's not lying, so that's great. Um, and then she also was, I mean, she was extremely kind. Like that form of attentiveness, um, it's not. I mean, it was even something that she did in workshop. Like she would have the person who was up read it, read aloud and um, would stop them. And so I had her as an, on a, as a one-on-one and then I had her in a class and then I had her again one-on-one. And those experiences were in some ways, the quality of the value of listening to the prose aloud was really drilled into me. And yeah, um, yeah she was also very funny. Like I have a very distinct memory of her calling me before an appointment and telling me she needed me to get something and would I like go to Starbucks and get these two drinks? So I did. <laughs> I arrived at her office with these two giant frappuccinos and I handed them both to her. And I assumed like, I don't know, one was for like another professor or something. She handed one back to me and she was like, all right, now we can start. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> just like sort of, she was, yeah, she was very like, um, she was, yeah, she was really, she was really great. I mean, it was such a, um, it was such a, it was such a treat to work with her. And I think that, um, like her attention to the natural world also, like, you know, when she ran out, she ran that workshop when I was a junior, she had us buy a gardening guide. Um, she was like, you guys do not know what the things around you are called. And we didn't. And that was also a valuable lesson. Yeah. I still have that somewhere. Um, I would carry it around campus. One of the things that I, um, one of the things I always talk about is 
artists whose work is based in um, paying very careful attention to what's around versus um, artists who um, who don't. And I think that there's very you know there's there's top flight excellence in both fields, you know. Uh, but it's it's interesting and informative to think of Kincaid as being an artist who needs to know what the plants are called. It kind of informs the the daffodil story to some extent. Yeah. But it also, um, this is kind of a bigger thing to say, but it kind of informs the degree of her, the fact that the place Lucy ends up at the end is a place that is very, very alone at the end of this book. She doesn't care about anyone. She isn't close to anyone. She has like connections, you know, she's like friends with Mariah, but what does that mean? You know, she's given her family a false address, even though she knows that her mother is in a like bad financial situation. She left, she gave her mother a bit of money to help her with one, you know, like a one-time lump sum of some money. And, um, and then has given her a fake address. So the mother has no way of contacting her ever again. And um, there's a way in which, the I guess like misanthropy cruelty is the other word we've been using um, of that ending could say she's the kind of artist that that feels resentful of the need to pay attention to the world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, or at least sense? yeah. Um, and it's just interesting to think of her as a person who doesn't have that as a that um, that's not like her inclination. It's not necessarily how she feels as a person it's how this character was forced to be by a series of attachments that that would only uh, harm her if she continued them yeah there's a line that i jotted down and you're right near the end i think the next last page i only hope they would not get angry and disrupt my life when they realize i did not care and then i wish i could love someone so much that i would die from it i feel like and there's all, all these um she's often she often mentions the bars on the windows in the city mm-hmm. um f- both as like an isolating thing and also keeping people out and away um and i feel like she's both uh, saddened by the loneliness and also to, it finds it kind of delicious um uh, I, I was going to say that in the same interview, it was a, an interview for Time magazine that I was watching, um, uh, where it's the same one where the interviewer said you were sent to the U.S. to be a maid. And that was when I was like, oh, I know a lot about the legal definition of au pairs. And finally, here's my platform to talk about it. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so in that same interview, she said that she likes being melancholy that her ideal day is one that she spends in pajamas feeling sad but only if it's her choice that she's feeling sad um and i think that that felt reminiscent of lucy the character of somebody who wants to alienate everyone and then feel lonely but not because people don't want her but because she has pushed them away yeah i like that photography seems like such a like a crucial mediation of all of this throughout like a way of like looking at other people and also pushing them away. Um, And even like, there's a part where right. Mariah is the person who buys her the book of photography, the book of the photographs Mm -hmm. that she likes from she, she likes going to museums 
Peggy doesn't, Peggy, her best friend, doesn't like going to museums. She goes to museums obsessively. She tells Mariah. Mariah buys her this book of photographs. She obsessively stares at them. Um, you know, she buys a camera. And all of these things you would think would bring her closer to other people or with a different person, they would probably. And here instead, what we get is sort of, I feel like like, like almost an increasing shove away. Um, like she takes photographs of Mariah and the children, no, no photographs of Lewis, photographs of objects. Yeah. My favorite joke in the book is about photography. It's right, right near the end when she gets the job from the photographer and um, she says, um, he was the first person I had met who had deeply compromised himself. He did not want to be in a studio taking photographs of things with the life gone out of them. He had wanted to roam the world taking photographs of people who had suffered horribly and through no fault of their own. But the market for the work he really wanted to do was limited. So it's this condescension not only to his decision to compromise, but also of the thing he really wants to do, which she also finds to be abhorrent and shallow. Yes. And she says that without actually saying it. You know, I I find that delightful. But yeah, this I agree with you that this whole like it, the the loneliness, um, the like deliberate solitude, the keeping love at bay, the um, the focus on objects and the act of seeing rather than the things that are being seen, I think are all really important sort of underlying uh, motifs in the book. And I think about all of the things that this book does so beautifully that sort of very conventional beginning creative writing would tell people not to do. Like, you know, have relationships and I don't know, sort of like the people won't follow an unlikable character or I don't know, like I'm not that these things are sort of so frequently said anymore necessarily, but I feel like they're, they're sort of the cliches that um, you can do so much with the, like the power of this voice takes you into that solitude in such a compelling way. Like I would, I'm happy to be alone with this character. Um, mm -hmm. The idea of being also the idea of being melancholy because you want to for a day in your pajamas sounds actually pretty appealing. Yeah. <laughs> um, you were going to, uh, John, you were going to talk about the Gauguin. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. There's that There's a, that riff um, in the, right in the middle of the book. Um, and this also is related um, to the discussion that we were having in the, in the beginning about the um, noticing race without addressing it directly. But of course we think of Gauguin as, as sort of an objectifier, someone who left his family and then, you know, painted pictures of some people in a distant place who are not like him. And when she brings it up, we expect, at least I expected a version of that take. And instead, um, instead, uh, she identifies with Gauguin because he abandons his family to find happiness, which yeah. to to her is uh, is an inevitability. It's what you have to do in order to have a, a satisfying life. Yeah, I think that, um, I said it before, I'll say it again, that feels like a major second half of the 20th century thing, like through all of the music, literature, just the... Um, like all of the glamours, there are so many layers of glamour around the idea of um, being the one who leaves and not the one who stays. Mm -hmm. um, and that happiness is found through rootlessness and freedom and sort of maximizing your economic potential and your uh, like not committing 
you know, that the person who wants to commit is the fool and the person who um, does not is the, um, that they hold all the power. In her, in her setting, her wanting to make that point and setting it on this backdrop, against this backdrop of colonialism, which she studiously pretends not to notice, I think is fascinating. Yeah, and then also that she's not explaining or apologizing for that Absolutely. in any of the yes. ways that we are used to. Yes. Um, she's yeah. not announcing herself. She's simply being there. And if you care to come along, then that's great. And if not, she really doesn't care. um, Yeah, that sort of, um, you know, I feel like now you hear there's a a sort of a thread of discourse over maybe the past five to 10 years about like, do quote unquote foreign words get italicized, right? That's like the form of the kind of conversation that people have about explanation. Like this is actually far more subtle. Um, The kind of, like it's, it's like a very subtle engagement with global history on a scale that in in individual life that we're like maybe as Americans not used to um, as readers that um, right there are other moments in there where there's a character maybe it's maybe it's Paul and he puts his hand in her hair and she she realizes her hair was new to him like he's perhaps <laughs> never touched the hair of a black person or um, yeah uh, where in the West Indies are you from like she understands that she understands that that person is cosmopolitan in a way that the other person isn't. Then also, when she goes to the camera store, she cheats on Paul um, with the guy at the camera store. I don't remember his name, but like he had been born in Panama, but his parents were from Martinique, mm-hmm. right? And so this is like this kind of like this history of migration put into this like this this character who doesn't appear more than once, but she feels like this kinship with him. I felt like that isn't with any of the other characters. Like she recognizes a fellow traveler. Um, yeah. Like he's maybe yeah. the character who's most like her in the book, actually. I, I found yeah. that scene so hilarious because it's and he, people who give her something that is going to make her self-actualize, she's instantly attracted to. You know, like Paul's correct identification of where she's from. And this idea of you said is as here is someone who is cosmopolitan and is that that is what I wish to become. Right. And the camera guy sells her the the tool that she will use to express herself. And uh, she she says, you remind me of my father. And he says that you should kiss me. And they spend the next day and a half in bed together. (laughs) It's really funny. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely like some of the lines. (laughs) Yeah, the come the come on the come on lines of Lucy are kind of amazing. All right, that was our episode on Lucy from 1990. Thank you to John and Suki for joining me, and to Adam Bear for our music. Thank you also to everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us, and to all listeners, well, listeners of all kinds, but especially the ones who rate and review. Thank you. Uh, if you'd like to write to us, otherwise, we're at Lit Century Pod on Twitter and Lit Century Podcast at gmail.com. And goodbye till next week. <laughs>